0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Early in his career, award-winning author Colson Whitehead didn't know if writing was for him. After publishing companies rejected his work, he began to rethink his career.
1: Maybe I wasn't cut out for this writing thing. I started thinking about what else I might be able to do. My parents were of that generation that if you're an able-bodied black person, it was your duty to make something of yourself, uplift the race, Become a doctor, a lawyer.
0: Whitehead stuck with his writing and went on to win a Pulitzer Prize for fiction for his book, The Underground Railroad. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling talks from on stage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from Winter Words, an Aspen Words author series. Colson Whitehead's 2016 book, The Underground Railroad, is an adventure story about Cora, a young slave on a Georgia cotton plantation. She's desperate to escape when she hears about the Underground Railroad. She risks escape and flees with another slave. In Whitehead's imaginative book, The Underground Railroad is not a metaphor. It's a secret network of tracks and tunnels beneath southern cities and towns. Conductors run train cars that take Cora to stops where she encounters terrifying scenes. Whitehead recreates the terror black people in the pre-Civil War era faced. The New York Times writes, quote, he has told a story essential to our understanding of the American past and the American present. Though the book is weighty, Whitehead's talk in Aspen is lighthearted. Here he is on February 12th.
1: Hey, howdy. Um, thanks for having me, and thanks for coming out tonight. I usually spend um, my evenings in home, weeping over my regrets. So this is a nice change of pace, (laughs) for me, anyway. Um, um, I realize that, you know, for for a lot of you, this is the first time you're encountering my work. So I thought I might start um, uh, talking about how I got started writing my journey to this place, if you will, um, where I'm coming from and where I'm going. I hope you'll find parts of it entertaining and uh, edifying. So I'll start at the beginning. Um, I was born a poor black child. I remember the days sitting on the porch with my family, singing and a-dancing down in Mississippi. Or maybe that was someone else, uh, Steve Martin in the movie The Jerk. Um, I was born and raised in Manhattan. Uh, I was a bit of a shut-in. I would have preferred to have been a sickly child, but it didn't work out that way. I always like it when you read a biography of someone like James Joyce, and it says, he was a sickly child and forced to retreat into a world of imagination. It always sounded so wonderful. Um, instead, I just didn't like going outside. Other kids did sports, played in the, in the great outdoors. I like to hang around in my living room watching The Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits. Um... I read a lot of comic books and science fiction, and I adored Stephen King. And it seemed, when I was in you know, seventh grade, that being a writer could be a great gig, you know, writing Spider-Man or the X-Men uh, for Marvel Comics. If you were a writer, uh, you could work from home. You didn't have to wear clothes or talk to people. <laughs> and you could just make up stuff all day. So until I got to college and started reading different kinds of fiction, you know, the so-called highbrow stuff, I wanted to write The Black Shining, or The Black Salem's Lot. Basically, if you took a Stephen King title and put The Black in front of it, uh, that's what I wanted to do. And then freshman year, I started reading, you know, the classics. uh, And I liked the equivalency that I saw um, between science fiction and horror that I grew up adoring, and say, magic realism in Garcia Marquez, the absurdity of Beckett, the mythical landscapes of Borges, You know, all these writers from the canon played with the fantastic as much as the genre writers that I grew up being inspired by. And I think it helps for my very first exposure to Samuel Beckett's freshman year. I found him to be a form of high realism. A guy is buried up to his neck in sand and can't move. He's an itch on his leg. He can't scratch. That seemed like Monday morning to me. Um, So I I consider myself a writer in college, but didn't actually sit down and write anything, which apparently is part of the process. Um, I I wore black and smoked cigarettes, but never actually sat down to write anything until junior year, when I I wrote two five-page stories, two five-page epics that I used to audition for the creative writing classes, and I was turned down each time. And I got very depressed uh, from those rejections, but looking back, it was good training for being a writer. Uh, Because when you're a writer, no one wants to read your crap, everyone hates you, and if you internalize that hatred early, you'll be prepared when you go out into the world. (laughs) Um, I did look out uh, when I graduated. I got a job at the Village Voice newspaper, you know, the Alternative Weekly in in, in New York. It just closed down uh, a few months ago. Um, And if you're not aware of what the village voice is, all you have to know about the village voice is that whenever you were there, it was at its height, and when you left, it went downhill. (laughs) So if you were there in the 1950s with Norman Mailer, writing about the birth of beatnik culture, that's when the voice was at its most vital, and then it went downhill when you moved on. If you were there in the 70s, writing about the glorious birth of punk and disco, that's when the voice was at its greatest, and then it declined when you moved on. I was there from 91 to 96. We put out a great paper. It's really sad what happened when I stopped working there. Um, (laughs) But that's really where I got my apprenticeship as a writer. If you're in the building, you could nag people for work. So after um, about six months, I approached the TV editor uh, for my first assignment. And now TV criticism is an accepted part of the critical ecosphere, people get Pulitzer's Surprises Prizes for writing TV criticism. But back then, it was, it was the most degrading part of the art section, so I thought I, w- I would fit right in. So I went up to the TV editor, and he gave me my big break into journalism, which was a think piece about the series finales of the show's growing pains and Who's the Boss? <laughs> um, looking back, I think it really holds up as the definitive critical work on those two sitcoms. And uh, I had a calling card I could could, uh, uh, write for the the, the film section and the book section, and soon I was making a living being a freelance writer, and I thought it was time to start working on my fiction. Um, So I was very self-conscious as a a young 20-something. I didn't want want to write that clichéd, autobiographical first novel that everyone does, Uh, that autobiographical first novel where you get back at everyone, whoever wronged you when you were a kid... I wanted to save that for my fourth novel, Sag Harbor. So um, in order to psych out the the publishing industry, I decided to write a novel about the the misadventures of a a Gary Coleman-esque child star. Do you remember Gary Coleman? He's a little black boy always being adopted by rich white people on on TV shows and and movies. So in in my novel, um, he's on a sitcom called I'm Moving In, apostrophe, moving. Because uh, in the 70s, you know, we had all these sitcoms with apostrophes, like different strokes, what's happening, and uh, this seemed like a real sop to realism. And uh, I got an agent, and I, was very, I got very excited. And then we started hearing back from people. And I, I for one, was very surprised that a book about the misadventures of a Gary Coleman-esque child star... Would fail to find its footing in the marketplace. It seemed like a, a surefire hit. That's why I wrote it in, in the first place. Um, and the rejection slips, you know, began to arrive in the mail and accumulate, and I started to have um, some really bizarre thoughts. When I first became aware of Top 40 radio, it was the late 70s. So I meant a lot of disco, uh, the B.G.s, Diana Ross, Donna Summer, and for years. I tried to understand what the song MacArthur Park was about. (laughs) I grew up on the Donna Summer version. Perhaps some of you remember the Richard Harris version with this Irish brogue. And I realized a lot of you don't even know what the hell I'm talking about. So um, I brought an audio aid. This song poses an enigma. Who left the cake out in the rain and why? Was it some childhood feud finally come to a head? A birthday party gone terribly, terribly awry? It wasn't until I started getting all these rejection letters as I sat around in my underwear watching Jerry Springer that I finally got what the song MacArthur Park is about. MacArthur Park is an investigation of the artist's journey. I had gone to a lot of trouble gathering ingredients, and when I was done, someone left my cake out in the rain. All the sweet green icing was flowing down. I didn't think that I could take it. Because it took so long to bake it, frankly, and I would never, ever, ever have that recipe again. Knopf Publishing Group, why did you leave my cake out in the rain? Houghton Mifflin Publishing Group, why did you leave my cake out in the rain? Atlas Vanity Publishing of Secaucus, New Jersey, why did you not even return my phone calls? That was so weird. Maybe I wasn't cut out for this writing thing. Um, I started thinking about what else I might be able to do. My parents were of that generation that if you're an able-bodied black person, it was your duty to make something of yourself, uplift the race, become a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant. Those professions weren't up my alley, so I tried to think about what else I might be able to do. And here I call your attention to my slender, delicate fingers and thin, feminine wrists. I bring them up not out of shame, but just to point out I'm not cut out for certain kinds of work, obviously. Um, Far from feeling shame, in fact, I mostly find I feel a kind of acute sadness these days about my hands because we've passed an important moment in our nation's history when a a skinny black man with slender, delicate fingers and thin, feminine wrists was actually president for a time. (laughs) So it was ever gonna be our time. That was pretty much it, and I missed it. (laughs) But back to my hands. These are hands that say, pianist, hand model, surgeon, uh, with these professions I might be suited for. Uh, Could I play the piano? Well, let me tell you a little story. The first thing I bought when I got a decent paycheck was an ergonomic chair. Uh, When I type, I hunt and peck and I slouch. And when I was writing my first book, I had to pop Advil all day because my neck was all fucked up from being hunched over. How could I sit at a piano bench without armrests, no lumbar support? I could not be a pianist. On paper, being a hand model must seem like the life. Uh, You get free watches, free hand cream. Meet a lot of interesting people in the international jet set but I had a very conservative upbringing. How could I indulge in the model lifestyle? I'd read stories about Kate Moss, who was the early 90s, so that was out. Surgeon, I was all set to go to med school, just head on down there and sign up whatever you do, and then I heard about how long operations are. You have to like stand on your feet for like 10, 15, 20 hours straight. What if you have to go to the bathroom? I kept thinking about this. Half the reason I got into the writing business was so that I could sit on my ass all day. So I tried to break it down scientifically. The average book of literary fiction sells 5,000 copies, 5,000 copies, if you're lucky. Now, assuming everyone loves this book, doesn't just throw it in the trash in disgust, and in addition makes 10 other people read it, then this book has 50,000 readers, 50,000 people who love it. Well, there are 6.5 billion people in the world. You've made an impact in the lives of 0.0000001% of the population. You're not even a gnat trying to catch the attention of an elephant. You're a microbe in the butt of a gnat trying to catch the attention of an elephant. I know there's some young writers in the audience, people are starting out writing, and I don't want to scare you with that 5,000 number I was trying to Google it before I got here, but I couldn't figure out the right search terms. I'm not not supposed to use Google as much as I do, but pretty much 18 years in to the revolution, I want Google for everything, Um, like a Google super ego. Say I'm out drinking, and I say to myself, oh, maybe I'll have one more beer. The Google super ego will go, do you mean head home right now? Or it's Sunday afternoon, and I say to myself, oh, look, there's a 10-hour... Project Runway Marathon on Bravo, I think I'll watch it. The Google super ego will go, do you mean read a book and tell your family how much you love them? I think it'd be a total killer app, but, but I digress, I guess. Um, where was I? Uh, the population of Earth, it's very intimidating. Well, what about life on other planets you might naturally ask yourself next? Perhaps there is life on other planets, and they have a taste for language poetry, creative nonfiction, coming coming-of-age novels. Well, I hate to burst your bubble, but scientists say that the nearest planet outside our solar system is ten and a half light years away, which is pretty far, and the chance of one of our Earth scientists coming up with a faster than light drive in our lifetime is quite slim. Estimates about the Possibility of life on other planets vary. Some say that only one in a hundred million planets is capable of supporting life. And what's the chance they would like your crap anyway? (laughs) They could be all about the haiku up there, some five-seven-five-based civilization. (laughs) And you're out of luck. So I got very depressed thinking about this. And then I thought, maybe it's out of my hands. Maybe I have no choice. A friend of mine is a real jerk. He has some fine qualities, but there's no escaping. He's a real jerk sometimes. And for years, I'd wondered how he came to be such a jerk. And then it occurred to me, evolution. For generations, jerks have been breeding with other jerks who have litters of jerks in turn. It must have started thousands of years ago when some Neanderthal jerk got together with another Neanderthal jerk in a cave. Um, perhaps they met while fighting over a piece of saber tooth meat or something and, and just clicked. You know, started talking about the weather. Oh, Gluck-Gluck, the thunder god is quite angry today, don't you think? Yes, I agree. And you have very lovely eyes. And it was pure chemistry. And they took it from there. And they had a child and and their jerk kid got together with another Neanderthal jerk's kid or Neanderthal of similar type, a moron or a douche. And they had a kid who was half moron and half douche and so on for millennia, more or less breeding and concentrating unpleasant qualities, herding all that negative DNA together until my friend was born. So I figure it's the same with writers, that artistic temperament must go back just as far. There's a Neanderthal who paused while beating in the skull of a Neanderthal from the next cave over, and he said to himself, hunting and gathering, gathering and hunting, is that all there is to this miserable life? And he was the first Neanderthal existentialist. And he found a Neanderthal of melancholy temperament, a Neanderthal female who liked to draw non-representational doodles on the cave wall, and, and, and she was the first abstract artist. I made a kid who didn't like to hunt or gather but just tell stories all day, and he found a suitable mate and so on throughout the centuries, spawning moody, arty kids. In the 1600s, one villager says to another, "Hey, did you see that new puppet show on TV- on that, that new puppet show last night?" And the artistic villager says, "No, I don't watch puppet shows. I don't even own a puppet show set." I only listen to NPR." And so on, to the present day, that artistic DNA surviving and getting together. So as I sat in my dirty studio apartment... Uh, watching Jerry Springer and relating too much to Jerry Springer, I realized that I was a recipient of all that sit on your ass, muse about crap all day DNA. And it didn't matter if no one liked what I was doing. I had no choice but to start over. So I did, and it went better uh, the next time.
0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. Thanks for listening. Looking for more author readings? Last month we dropped an episode featuring Tommy Caldwell, an accomplished climber. He wrote a book about his historic summit of Yosemite's Dawn Wall. It took he and his partner 19 days in harsh conditions to complete the climb. Climbing, you know, 2,000 feet off the ground in the middle of the night when it's windy and super gnarly out is pretty scary. (laughs) Um, But after a while you start to get used to it. He talks about his memoir, The Push, in our episode, Pushing the Limits. Find it in our archive on your favorite podcast player. There's also a link in our show notes. Here's the rest of today's show, Colson Whitehead.
1: So The Underground Wheel Road. I first had the idea for the book almost 19 years ago. Um, I was sitting on my couch and came across a reference to the, to the railroad. I remember how when I was a kid, I first heard those, heard those words, they're so evocative, I thought it was a literal train beneath the earth, which is very impractical. You know, we have uh, seven miles of, of track in New York City, and we could barely keep that going. So 3,000 miles beneath America is quite the task. But I wasn't the only person you know, who thought that. And... Um, my teacher explained how it actually worked. Some people go through their whole lives thinking it's a literal train. I gave a talk in Florida last spring, and a woman came up to me in her 60s probably, and uh, she'd read the book, and she said, um, I just had a question for you before you go on. You know, have there been any studies about the cave-ins? And I was like, you know, sorry? I she said, well, it's such an engineering problem. How, you know, the tunnels are so deep. Have there been any studies about the cave-ins? And I was like, really? Um, <laughs> so that's a testament to how evocative those two words are, Underground Railroad, and how crappy our educational system is. <laughs> um, but that scene that day on my couch, wouldn't it be just a weird idea premise for a book uh, to make this imaginary train, this metaphor, into a literal train. What kind of story could I get out of that? So, um, that's more of a premise. So I added the element that each state that our protagonist goes through is a different state of American possibility, like Gulliver's Travels. And it seemed like such a good idea uh, that day, 19 years ago, They knew if I tried it back then, I would have screwed it up. I thought if I wrote some more books, I might become a better writer and be able to pull it off in a technical sense. Uh, the structural uh, complexity of it. I thought um, if I was older and more mature, I might bring the wisdom of my years to the subject matter and make it live on the page. Um, If I saw the world, had some Hemingway-esque adventures, stabbed a hobo with a penknife or something, I could bring that life experience to the book and really make it rich. So each time I finished a novel, I would say to myself, oh, am I ready? And the answer was always no. Um, uh, Until, uh, I guess it was 2014, and I I had sold the book to my editor, but I was having some doubts about it. Um, So I figured, what the heck, maybe I'll tell my wife about this underground railroad idea that I've been carrying around for so long. Um, As many of you know, Sometimes, in a marriage, you have to make conversation to kill the silences. So I told her about the idea, and she just said, well, honey, I don't want to say that the book you're working on now about a Brooklyn writer going through a midlife crisis um, is dumb, per se, but this other book sounds really good. So I was like, huh. Uh, That was one vote. I decided to tell my agent, who I've worked with for, you know, 21 years, she's always very supportive, and uh, I told her, and she just said, well, you know, Colson, both ideas sound good, uh, which is not very helpful, but then she did something she never does, which is email me on a Sunday, and she said, I can't stop thinking about this Underground Railroad idea of yours, Um, so that was two votes. Wednesday was shrink day, so I told my shrink, and... um, she just said, what are you, crazy? <laughs> I mean, we both know you're crazy, but with your issues, yeah, you should totally work on this book or whatever, you know. Um, so I just left my editor, who I've worked with for 20 years, um, and I already sold this other idea to him, so I called him up with some trepidation, and he just said, um, giddy up, motherfucker, which is old-school publishing talk for, that sounds very compelling and we should pursue it. Um, So I did, and this is the book that happened. Uh, I'm going to read a section... um, From the early part, Uh, our protagonist, Cora, is on a plantation in Georgia. Uh, She's 17. She doesn't actually know how old she is. Uh, Slave masters didn't necessarily keep track of how old their property was. Uh, The same way you might have a vacuum cleaner, and know vaguely when you bought it, why would you know it's date of manufacturer? It's just a piece of property, a tool you have. So she's on a plantation owned by James and Terence Randall. Uh, The occasion is old Jockey's birthday. He's the oldest slave in the plantation, and whenever he senses a need for release in the slave quarter, he'll declare, it's my birthday. And they'll have music, and it's a brief release. There's a reference to Chester, who's a a young boy, 10 years old, and Cora has taken him under her wing. He's an orphan. And I'll leave it at that. The music stopped. The circle broke. Sometimes a slave will be lost in a brief eddy of liberation. In the sway of a sudden reverie among the furrows, or while untangling the mysteries of an early morning dream. In the middle of a song on a warm Sunday night. Then it comes always the overseer's cry, the call to work, the shadow of the master. The reminder that she's only a human being for a tiny moment across the eternity of her servitude. The Randall brothers had emerged from the great house and were among them. The slaves stepped aside, making calculations of what distance represented the right proportion of fear and respect. Godfrey, James's houseboy, held up a lantern. According to Old Jockey, James favored the mother, stout as a barrel and just as firm in countenance, and Terence took after the father, tall and owl-faced, perpetually on the verge of swooping down on prey. In addition to the land, they inherited their father's tailor, who arrived once a month in his rickety carriage with his samples of linen and cotton. The brothers dressed alike when they were children and continued to do so into manhood. Their white trousers and shirts were as clean as the laundry girl's hands could make them, and the orange glow of the lantern made the men look like ghosts emerging from the dark. Master James, Jockey said. His good hand gripped the arm of his chair as if to rise. Master Terence Don't let us disturb you, Terence said. My brother and I were discussing business and heard the music. I told him, Now that is the most god awful racket I've ever heard. The Randalls were drinking wine out of goblets of cut glass, and looked as if they drained a few bottles. Chorus searched for Caesar's face in the crowd. She didn't find him. He hadn't been present the last time the brothers appeared together on the northern half. You did well to remember the different lessons of those occasions. Something always happened when the Randalls ventured into the quarter, sooner or later. A new thing coming that you couldn't predict until it was upon you. Terence scratched his cane in the dirt. It had been his father's cane topped with a silver wolf's head. Many remembered its bite on their flesh. Terrence said. Then I recollected James tell me that a nigger he had down here could recite the Declaration of Independence. I can't bring myself to believe him. I thought perhaps tonight he can show me, since everyone is out and about from the sound of it. We'll settle it, James said. Where is that boy, Michael? No one said anything. Godfrey waved the lantern around pathetically. Moses was the boss unfortunate enough to stand closest to the Randall brothers. He cleared his throat. Michael dead, Master James. Michael, the slave in question, had indeed possessed the ability to recite long passages. According to Connolly, who heard the story from the nigger trader, Michael's former master was fascinated by the abilities of South American parrots and reasoned that if a bird could be taught limericks, a slave might be taught to remember as well. Merely glancing at the size of their skulls told you, a nigger possessed a bigger brain than a bird. Michael had been the son of his master's coachman, had a brand of animal cleverness, the kind you see in pigs sometimes. The master and his unlikely pupil started with simple rhymes and short passages from popular British versifiers. They went slow over the words. The nigger didn't understand. And if truth be told, the master only half understood. But they made miracles, the tobacco farmer and the coachman's son. The Declaration of Independence was their masterpiece. Michael's ability never amounted to more than a parlor trick, delighting visitors before the discussion turned, as it always did, to the, diminished, to the diminished faculties of niggers. His owner grew bored and sold the boy south. By the time Michael got to Randall, some torture or punishment had addled his senses. He was a mediocre worker. He complained of noises and black spells that blotted his memory. In exasperation, Connolly beat out what little brains he had left. It was a scourging that Michael was not intended to survive, and it achieved its purpose. I should have been told, James said. Making his displeasure plain, Michael's recitation had been a novel diversion the two times he trotted the nigger out for guests. Terence liked to tease his brother. James, he said, you need to keep better account of your property. <sighs> Don't meddle. Terrence continued. I knew you let your slaves have revels, but I had no idea they were so extravagant. Are you trying to make me look bad? Don't pretend you care what a nigger thinks about you, Terrence. James's glass was empty. He turned to go. Oh, one more song, brother. These sounds have grown on me. George and Wesley, the musicians, were forlorn. Noble and his tambourine were nowhere to be seen. James pressed his lips into a slit, he gestured, and the men started playing. Terence tapped his cane, his face sank as he took in the crowd. You're not gonna dance, I have to insist. You and you and you. They didn't wait for their master's signal. The slaves of the northern half converged on the alley haltingly, trying to insinuate themselves into their previous rhythm and put on a show. Putting on a show for master was a familiar skill, the small angles and advantages of the mask. And they shook off their fear as they settled into the performance. Oh, how they capered and hollered, shouted and hopped. Certainly this was the most lively song they'd ever heard, the musicians the most accomplished players the colored race had to offer. Cora dragged herself into the circle, checking the Randall brothers' reactions like on every turn like everyone else. Jockey tumbled his hands in his lap to keep time. Cora found Caesar's face. He stood in the shadow of the kitchen, his expression flat. Then he withdrew. You! It was Terence. He held his hand before him as if it were covered in some eternal stain that only he could see. Then Cora caught sight of it, the single drop of red wine staining the cuff of his lovely white shirt. Chester, the boy, had bumped him. Chester simpered and bowed before the white man. Sorry, master. Sorry, master. The cane crashed across his shoulder and head again and again. The boy screamed and shrank to the dirt as the blows continued. Terence's arm rose and fell. James looked tired. One drop. A feeling settled over Cora. She'd not been under its spell in years since she brought the hatchet down on Blake's doghouse and sent the splinters into the air. She'd seen men hung from trees and left for buzzards and crows, women carved open to the bones with the cat-o'-nine-tails, feet cut off to prevent escape and hands cut off to stop theft. She'd seen boys and girls younger than this beaten and had done nothing. This night, the feeling settled in her heart again. It grabbed hold of her, and before the slave part of her caught up with the human part of her, she was bent over the boy's body as a shield. She held the cane in her hand like a swamp man handling a snake and saw the ornament at its tip. The silver wolf bared its silver teeth, then the cane was out of her hand. It came down in her head. It crashed down again, and this time the silver teeth ripped across her eyes, and her blood splattered the dirt. So after that, Cora's position on the plantation becomes untenable, and she takes Caesar up on his offer to take the Underground Railroad. Um... So the books, you know, came out about two and a half years ago, and I've been in front of a lot of different audiences. Um, and there are a few questions that come up, you know, fairly often, you know, sort of logical. Why did I decide to make the protagonist a woman? And there are a couple of reasons. Um, over the many years when I had the idea in the back of my head, you know, the protagonist was a man running away for himself, a husband looking for a wife who'd been sold off, a parent looking for a child. And then finally I decided on a mother-daughter dynamic, because i have never done that in, a, in fiction before. And uh, I always try to do different, thing, different things, sorry, uh, to mix it up. So that was one argument. Another is that, um, you know, when I was in college reading slave narratives, one that stayed with me, was written by Harriet Jacobs. It's called Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. And according to her story, she ran away from her master, uh, hid, hid seven years in an attic, and... Um, before she got passage to the north. And she writes very movingly about the dilemma of the, the female slave. When a, a slave girl becomes a slave woman, she enters into a new, more terrible form of slavery. She's now subject to her master's sexual desires, if she wasn't already. She's supposed to pump out babies, because uh, more babies means more property, more slaves for her owner. So it's just a different predicament than face the male slave, and that seemed worthy of, of taking up. And then finally, I had a bunch of male protagonists in a row, and so a voice in the back of my head was saying, don't do the same crap all the time, Colson. you know, mix it up. And people want to know, you know, is it hard to do, have a, a female protagonist? And the answer is yes, it's always hard. Um, you know, I, I think uh, if it's going too easily, you're probably not putting the work in. And some of my protagonists, my heroes, have more or less bits of me in them. People I know. And I think Cora in the Underground Railroad has the least amount of my personality in her, which is probably why people like this book more than my other ones. <laughs> um, why, not tell, why not tell a realistic story? People want to know. Uh, why make the metaphor uh, into a literal train? Well, you know, as I explained earlier, that's the sort of fanciful genesis of the book, what if? Um, so it's already fantastic from its very conception. And if I'd stuck true realistic story, I couldn't have the sort of play with history that I think makes the, you know, the story compelling. Um, if you look at the North Carolina section in the book, for example, I mentioned Harriet Jacobs, who hid seven years in an attic. You think hiding in an attic, Anne Frank. Well, how can I take uh, the story, which is partially about the oppression of black people, and bring in the oppression of Jewish people in Europe? in the 30s and 40s, um, the Nazis took their ideas about racial purity and eugenics from 19th century American scientists. They got their idea of, of um, controlling the Jewish population from our Jim Crow laws from the south that restricted black movement, lynching culture. They took all the terrible ideas that Americans came up with in the 19th century to control black people and use them to control and destroy the Jews in Europe. And if I stuck to a realistic story, I couldn't have that sort of play with history. Um, That makes the book, at least, interesting for me. There's usually an older gentleman in the audience, not the stereotype, uh, one who probably mostly reads, like, 900 page biographies of Winston Churchill, who wants to know, um, aren't you concerned that people will be confused about what's real and what's fake? You know, fake news, fake news, like, aren't you worried that people could be confused? Don't you have a responsibility to the reader? And the answer is no. I have no responsibility to the reader. Um, I'm not a very trusting person, but I trust that the reader knows the difference between fiction and nonfiction. Fiction, for example, is made up. Nonfiction is true. Um, it's one difference. Uh, the novel, you know, says the Underground Railroad colon a novel. That's a tip off that uh, some fictional stuff going on. Um, another tip-off is that on page 78 there's a literal train beneath the earth for a thousand of miles. Um, but I understand what the gentleman means, you know, fake news has become a, a big part of our lives and there can be terrible consequences, sometimes lethal consequences. Um, every year uh, we lose a couple of people who d- are killed, unfortunately, because they step into tornadoes, thinking it will take them to the Wizard of Oz, and that's very tragic. Um, I, for one, refuse to go to Costa Rica for obvious reasons. That's where they shot Jurassic Park, and I'm really afraid of dinosaurs, so I'll never go to Costa Rica. Um, But in general, uh, I think people can keep up. I guess before I I take questions from the audience, uh, there's one one thing that comes up a lot, and that is what am I working on next? Uh, Very logical. It's gonna be hard to follow up *The Underground Railroad*, and um, as opposed to the easy books, you know, they're all pretty hard. (laughs) Writing books is not really that easy. Um, But for me, you know, I I sort of like to work in different genres. You know, I have a a zombie apocalypse novel, I have a coming-of-age novel, and *This is Underground Railroad* is a sort of a pseudo-historical novel. So I have two ideas I'm working on now, and I'm trying to decide. Uh, which one to go forward with. One is very obvious, um, or sort of not so obvious coming from me. It's a a real departure. It's a romance, a love story, set on the eve of the Russian Revolution. And uh, there are a lot of white people in it, so for research I'm watching Golden Girls reruns. I got a box set. Um, (laughs) Picking up a lot of handy stuff I think I can use, so maybe that one. And the other one, You know, science fiction, which is a genre I have worked in before, so that's maybe more obvious. But, um, specifically, science fiction set in the Star Wars universe. Um, You know, they're making all these sequel movies now, uh, expanding the canon. And I think there's room for, you know, my vision. Um, I know Disney's really protective of their so-called intellectual property or whatever. But if you ask me, copyright is an outmoded concept, like uh, being happy or falling in love or something like that. Um, I think there are a lot of unanswered questions in the Star Wars universe, and I think I could be a real help. Um, Like in the first movie, Star Wars, uh, for example, they have the Death Star, which is a weapon the size of a small moon. Um, They have lightsabers, which are literally swords made out of laser. And they have hyperspace, faster-than-light drive that can take you from one end of the the universe to the other in the blink of an eye. But R2-D2 can't get a fucking voice box. I don't really get it. It Doesn't make any sense to me. Um, He's just like... (whistles) He's the smartest character in all the movies and and he can't even speak. Luke Skywalker gets his hand cut off. He gets a robot hand in Empire. Um, Darth Vader falls into a volcano. He gets a new robot body. Uh, They destroy the Death Star and they make a new Death Star and this time it's the size of a planet. But R2-D2 can't get a fucking voice box. It doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, it's not a technical problem. They have the technology. C-3PO is running his mouth all the time. Like when they land on Tatooine, the desert planet, in the first movie. Um, before they get picked up, by, picked up by the Jawas, who are these sort of tiny creatures, remember? Sort of, um, they're basically space crackheads. They, um, they traffic in stolen property. And if you ask them, like, where they get everything, they're like all furtive, like, Oh, oh I fell off a truck. Oh, it's my uncle. It's $5, $5. Um, so space crackheads. Um, but before they get picked up by the Jawas, C-3PO and R2-D2 are wandering the desert, and c 3 po is like, I dare say the desert sands are burning my feet. And r 2 d like, <laughs> But you know, if he could speak, he's actually saying, Princess Leia's been kidnapped, I got a blueprint of the Death Star in my chest, Darth Vader's trying to destroy the universe, and this silly motherfucker's talking about how the sand is hot. Plus, we're in love, but we can't get benefits because the Empire won't recognize our union. So, I'll see which story. I'm trying to weigh each one. And uh, anyway, thanks so much for having me. If you have any questions or some microphones.
0: I'm curious about your relationship to an idea that you've been carrying around for 19 years and that you wrote and now you're touring with it for two and a half. And as somebody who said he likes to keep, mix it up, and how do you keep it interesting and fresh and end up not like, getting really tired of this really great idea?
1: Well, I mean, um, in terms of sticking with the idea, you know, I had it for like 14 years before I committed to it. And so if it stays with you, that's sort of arguing for its worthiness. You know, I definitely had ideas... Um, and then my schedule is clear, and I'm like, should I you know, write this novel? And I'm like, oh, it's actually dumb. You know. It, was, it seemed good five years ago, but not. So the idea was compelling, and I stuck with it. And now um, I've been traveling with the book for two and a half years. Uh, it's, it's my eighth book, and I have books that no one really cared when they came out. And uh, it's nice when you have a book, and people actually relate to it and understand it, and... Uh, you know, I was very fortunate with the reception for this book, so I'm, I feel almost very lucky to be asked to, you know, come out. Uh, I have a new book coming out in, um, in the summer, and so like, my Underground Railroad show is coming to a close, and so I feel sort of sad, that, and, but, uh, but I get to talk about a new book. And so, um, you know, I, I've had books where it comes out, and a week later, nobody gives a crap, and then this is very different, and so I feel fortunate.
0: Uh, first of all, Underground Railroad was profound, so thank you for writing it. Um, second of all, I'm curious about you know, what the visual version will look like and how involved you will be with Barry Jenkins. And also, if you've considered asking Rihanna Giddens to write the music for it. Asking who? Rihanna Giddens. Do you know uh, Rihanna Giddens? Man. She's phenomenal.
1: Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh uh, being adapted into a TV series by Barry Jenkins in Moonlight. Uh, it was very exciting. You know, he uh, approached us before Moonlight came out. The book had been out for like a month. And um, I don't know anything about interviewing filmmakers. So I was like, are there any slave movies you're thinking of for inspiration? And he was like, slave movies? No, I was thinking, you know, P.T. Anderson's There Will Be Blood and The Master. And I was like, you got the job. I mean, those are, you know. So um, I'm not... I'm, I'm, I consult occasionally, but I'm not actually writing it. I sort of wrote it once and don't want to do it again. I have had one suggestion, which is, um, there's an actor named Walton Goggins. Do you know him? Walton Goggins fan in the house? All right. So he usually plays like this kind of redneck Southern guy. So my idea was that sort of like Eddie Murphy in the Clumps or the Dr. Doolittle, he can play all the white people, but in makeup and CGI. So little girls, old ladies, this is Walton Goggins all, all the time. And so, um, I tweeted that to Barry Jenkins and, and he didn't respond. So, I'm not sure <laughs> if I have enough juice to get your friend uh, or your, your, your artist to do the music. So.
0: Um, I'm curious as a reader, a lot of the violent scenes evoked such strong feelings in me. I was horrified, appalled. And I'm just wondering as the writer, how that is for you during all those violent scenes.
1: Um, It's been a strange, you know, couple years. I mean, I think with the Underground Railroad, the heavy duty processing was before I started writing, committing to telling a realistic slave story despite, you know, the fantastic parts. Um, I felt a duty for my ancestors who somehow survived uh, the plantation in Middle Passage to have children who they protected and somehow I got here when it's really a miracle that I am here. It's not gone with the wind, like a white lady's being self-actualized against the backdrop of slavery. Like, oh, they're burning my house. It's like, good, they should burn your house. You're a fucking slaver, asshole. (laughs) Um, So, um, I committed to realism. That means a lot of violence. Uh, Bad things happen to Core because they would have in that circumstance. But once I committed to it and I was writing it every day, I didn't, it was very separate from my life. Um, And then I got a hundred pages in, I was like, oh, maybe I'll watch 12 Years a Slave. I'll get some ideas. I'm, I'm, enough, I'm deep enough into the book, I'm not going to get, like, tainted. And I could only watch an hour before I had to turn it off. I could, like, put it on the page every day, but I couldn't see actors do it. So that's my weird. So that was my weird trauma. And it'll be a while before I, I see, like, a, another sort of slave movie or movie about that time. The book, a book I finished that's coming out in the spring is about an abusive reform school and bad things happen, it's based on a true story, and bad things happen to the juvenile delinquents who were in this reform school in Florida during Jim Crow. And definitely in the last few months of the writing that I was like, just depressed all the time, having two sort of, really sort of heavy books, two heavy books in a row. Um, and uh, I usually mix it up, sort of, books with jokes, books with fewer jokes. So this was, a, this was a long stretch for me and I finished the book and I played video games for like six weeks to decompress. So, so I have different ways of, of coping. I usually read uh, science fiction and uh, uh, stuff that's funny. I'm going to take it a little bit to the lighter side. I, I just heard that uh, you were influenced by Hunter Thompson. This is part one. And uh, the other part, uh, the Arthur C. Clarke Award. That's a, the author of 2001. Uh, that's it's a science amazing, fiction award. Yeah, and that's an amazing, I read that, and it, it's, it's, the movie was a great interpretation, but uh, uh, how does that uh, award, uh, how is that part of the, um, it's, it's given for the characters in your story. It, it's, given, it's given for uh, what uh, some, some British judges think is, a, you know, what they think is the best science fiction book of that year, and this book has a fantastic structure. Uh, Some people call it cyberpunk because there's a a train beneath the earth. Uh, For me, it's just fantasy, but uh, if you want to call it magic realism or or science fiction, I'm I'm sort of fine with that. I grew up reading Arthur C. Clarke and and Stephen King and uh, Stan Lee at Marvel Comics made me want to be a writer, just making up weird, goofy shit. And so um, I've written books that are realistic and books that have some some fantastic bits. And this one definitely, uh, the permission to write a book that has a literal train beneath the earth comes from my early sort of science fiction fantasy reading. And I was very honored that, you know, some some other people who write science fiction, you know, saw that connection. Um, Hunter S. Thompson, you know, like everyone else, I I draw inspiration from a lot of different other folks. I worked at the Village Voice. um, uh, And uh, in high school, uh, that sort of very sort of free, creative nonfiction voice I was in the village voice. Uh, a lot of writers comes from new journalism, Hunter S. Thompson, um, Tom Wolf, and I had older sisters who would you know, have their Tom Wolf books, Hunter S. Thompson, uh, Joan Didion, and then I would sneak into their rooms and, and pick them up and read them. And, and so that very exuberant voice that uses the tools of, of the novel for nonfiction seemed very natural to me also. So Hunter S. Thompson's in there as well. You, you said the book is, uh, is a, a nonfiction book. How no, uh, no. I mean, *Another Man's Melody* was a novel, as is the right, right. the book I just finished. My um, my two nonfiction books: one is about the World Series of Poker. The other book is a series of essays about New York City. Well, given the uh, the reality of, of the topic, uh, how did you deal or with anger in, as you went through the process of writing it? Well, it was, it was less anger and more like sort of depression and despair. You know, realizing that, uh, as I said, I, I shouldn't really be here. It's a miracle that 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 ancestor wasn't killed. Um, at this juncture, at that juncture, and they somehow survived uh, to have children. Um, if I was processing strong emotions like anger and sadness, I couldn't sit down and compose every day. You know, composition is a... Um, uh, it's, it's crafting, you can't be like, emotionally off-kilter uh, that much. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I work and I come out of my office, figure out what to make for dinner, uh, start drinking, and, uh, and, my, and my life life is different from my work life. I was quite moved by your book, um, uh, having grown up uh, in the apartheid state of the South, and, um, and reading in the North Carolina section where the black faces happen in the uh, park antics and how horrific they are. It must. Have, I'd be very interested in your reaction to this recent uh, accusations on these two politicians in Virginia and blackface. Yeah, blackface has been uh, a tradition in America for 200 years. You know, uh, I've read about it before in my first book 20 years ago. I guess I'm still writing about it 18 years later. <laughs> People are still doing it. Um, in the North Carolina section, you know, uh, if you haven't read it, it's a, a white supremacist state, and so it's Jim Crow laws, exaggerated. It's Nazi Germany, exaggerated. Um, every Friday, they have entertainment. They have a minstrel show, white guys in, in burnt cork. Um, they have music, and then they have a lynching. And lynchings were entertainment. You know, you have this guy framed. You break him out of jail. You invite the whole town, grandma, uh, little Susan, to watch this guy getting killed, and it was entertainment. And so, you know, in, in that scene, I'm drawing... You know, trying the parallel between uh, lynching as entertainment, minstrelry as entertainment, uh, the basement of black people as entertainment. Um, So I wasn't surprised, I was more surprised by the Liam Neeson thing. You know, I sort of gave Liam Neeson a lot of, he's a cool guy, beats up people. So I felt bad about that. The blackface thing, you know, it goes on a lot and it's not surprising. People get off on it. Uh, Thank you for coming to talk to us today. I just have two quick questions. What games are you playing right now? And could you talk a little bit about maybe your technical process for writing? Like outlines or software or anything sure. like that? Sure. Uh, uh, I usually get like one game. I'll play it for like six weeks. And that's it for like a year, a year, year and a half. My wife's here. She so knows I'm stretching it a little bit. Uh, but um, right now I'm playing Into the Breach. Um, it's like time travel, like space robots. And... Uh, sort of chess-like, you know, so anyway, <laughs> into the breach. Um, and, uh, and then my process, you know, I outline a lot. I have to know the beginning and the end. The middle can be fuzzy. Um, but for me, outlining, uh, like I was saying before about the worthiness of a subject, if I can outline it without getting sick of it, that means that maybe it's worth doing. And I'm not just sort of casting them out every day what's going to happen, what's going to happen, each day I wake up and it's like, introduce the hob cabin, introduce Cora's, uh, the guy in the railroad. I have like a task every day, I have an outline. And the outline can grow bigger or smaller um, as the story changes, you know, you don't want to be too rigid. Um, But you definitely have to be writing towards the the final scene, which I've done the last couple books. Um, If I can do eight pages a week, I'm pretty happy. It could be Monday and Tuesday and then Thursday and Saturday or... Wednesday through Sunday. But if I can do eight pages a week, uh, that's what? 16, 32 a month, um, 300 a year. You take away uh, Christmas. You got to hang out with your relatives. <laughs> you know, sometimes you got to do some shit, and you can't get your eight pages in. But for me, it adds up. If you write four pages a week, that's like 400 every two years. And that's a book. So for me, breaking, breaking a big task into units, seeing an endpoint, whether it's a novel or a children's party or something. If I can see the end, I can can get through to it. Um, And then research, different books that demand different kinds of research. Um, uh, Underground Railroad, a lot of primary sources. Uh, The more research I can do at home, the happier I am. Uh, Because when I leave the house, there's too many people. And if I can avoid Human interaction on a daily basis, I'm really happy. And so, a lot of the primary sources for the Underground Railroad have been digitized by libraries and you can download them in the safety of your home. So, So, thanks.
0: Author Colson Whitehead has received MacArthur and Guggenheim fellowships, among others. He earned a Pulitzer Prize and a National Book Award for his 2016 book, The Underground Railroad. It was also a number one New York Times bestseller. His upcoming novel, The Nickel Boys, will be published in July. His talk was held in Aspen, Colorado, as part of Winter Words, an author series held by Aspen Words. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Words team includes Adrian Brodeur, Carolyn Torrey, Marie Chan, Elizabeth Nix, and Ellie Scott. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.